Hi, everyone. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dave Giancola from the USGA, joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Mike Trosel. Mike, how are you today? Dave, doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well, and Mike and I are so excited today to be joined by Kathy Engelbert. You know her as the commissioner of the WNBA, who also just last week became one of the newest members of the USGA Executive Committee. Before joining the WNBA in 2019, Kathy had been with Deloitte for 33 years, where she most recently served as CEO from 2015 through 2019, making her the first female CEO of a big four firm. She is a trailblazer, and we're so excited to have her join us today. Kathy, congratulations on officially joining the USGA, and thanks for joining us. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, Dave and Mike. Thanks so much. You know, challenging times, different times for live sports, but, you know, looking forward to, to moving forward with the USGA Executive Committee role. And Kathy, I want to get into that in a little bit, but, but first, you didn't get into golf until a little bit later in your life. How did sports play a big role in your life growing up in a family, a big family of eight children? Yeah, so I had seven siblings, five brothers. Um, and I remember my father, who was 6'6 and had a very accomplished basketball career, um, having golf clubs, you know, the persimmon wood. And, you know, he was 6'6, so they were custom made at the time. And I, I just remember, and in fact, when I first started playing, closer to when I was 30, unfortunately, because I was playing basketball and tennis and lacrosse, and I played two sports at a small D1 school, Lehigh University. But um, you know, I just remember my dad, you know, really enjoying the game. And, um, I, when I started playing, I started playing with his clubs and I couldn't get the ball in the air. So, you know, I would call myself a recreational golfer now, but I, I really started playing to have another way to build business relationships back when I was in my late twenties into my thirties. And, um, you know, just such a great game and always enjoyed being outside, you know, nature, you know, just um, competing because I'm very competitive, having played sports growing up with five brothers, always in the backyard doing something. And, and so golf, you know, as I as I started to build a business career was such a great way to build these relationships. Well, Kathy, we'll get to golf in, in just a little bit, but lacrosse was your sport and why you were recruited to Lehigh. But what did you learn from the experience of walking on the basketball team as well and eventually earning the title of team captain when you were there? Yeah, no. So, you know, just playing two sports in college, what I learned the most is how to balance, you know, the time with studying because Lehigh's uh, top rate academics as well. So it was everybody there is like top 10 in their class. And so I, I get there and walk on for the basketball team for now Naismith Hall fame coach Muffet McGraw. So, and really just, she turned that program around. I think they had four or five wins, you know, the year before she came on. And then by my senior year, we were 24 and four. So just, you know, leading that team. And I was the MVP of the East coast conference tournament, which we won. And back then they didn't take, you know, uh, a lot of teams in the women's side of the March madness, but, you know, just learned so much about leadership that I never would have reflected on at the time, but looking back now over three decades, you know, was such an important part of shape me. And then lacrosse, we were pretty darn good too. You know, we were ranked, I think in the top 10, my junior year, and went to the NCAA tournament and went, lost to Maryland. We got to Maryland in this big stadium. They played in their football stadium at the time. And, and you know, a very intimidated little Lehigh versus, he was like David versus Goliath. But, you know, just so great having sports to shape me ultimately into the leadership that I was blessed to have at, at Deloitte and now at the WNBA. Now, you said you didn't start playing golf a little bit later in life. You know, what are some of the barriers that beginners face when they do start playing the game? And what do you think can be done 
to make those who are just picking it up feel a little more comfortable, a little more confident on the course? Yeah, I definitely think one of the number one barriers is access. I mean, I grew up in a family of eight where, you know, my parents, you know, both work. My dad worked three jobs to put us through eight of us through college. And um, so I, I think it's access and cost. And I think the USGA has done a great job around um, getting more diverse players into the game. Um, you know, one of the things I'm proud of as, uh, you know, a few years ago when Deloitte became a sponsor of the USGA is we didn't just make it about a partnership with the USGA. We made it about a talent play at Deloitte. We had a hundred thousand employees and we said, and at an average age in their late twenties, mid to late twenties, because we hire a lot of young people and they start their career with Deloitte. And, you know, so proud of, of the work we did to get more diverse and younger golfers into the game, just in our little world at Deloitte. I think we started something called our, our logo is Deloitte with a green dot called the green dot golf club. And, you know, I think we had um, initially 3,000, but ultimately 5,000, and hopefully it's grown. New golfers come into the game and very diverse golfers because our workforce was quite diverse. So I think it's access. I think it's, you know, providing a, a platform by which you would draw young people into the game and diverse young people as well. And I, I think, you know, my admiration for the efforts the USGA has done around play nine, for instance, because sometimes time is an impediment when you're working full time and raising kids. And for me, I did take a few years off of golf when my kids were really young, um, just because, you know, being a full-time working mom and, and when they were much younger and now, um, both my kids, um, I have a daughter who's 23 and a son who's 19. They both play and I'm glad they took it up a lot earlier. My son, you know, was swinging a golf club at three years old and then he went into baseball in high school, but now he's back to golf and loves the game. And I take him everywhere that I go to play. And it's just so fun now to see, you know, that they've had this access that I really didn't have till I was, you know, almost 30. When you talk about opening up the game, it's a natural segue to draw a comparison between the USGA and the WNBA, the work you've done. Uh, March is Women's History Month, and, and while it's clear that celebrating women's contributions shouldn't be limited to a single month, why is it important to put a focus on, on building awareness, especially in the sports sphere? Yeah, it's so important because one thing hopefully I'll bring to the USGA Executive Committee is now being a sports executive for a couple of years is... Um, you know, the need to build um, momentum around women's sports that's there, because if you look at people surveyed, like 84 percent of sports fans say they're interested in women's sports, but we don't have enough eyes on the game, on the golf game or the women's golf game or the WNBA. So it's about marketing, marketing, marketing. It's about the valuation model for women's sports. It's flawed. Um, and that's something that I think collectively all of women's sports can help move the needle on around sponsorships and media coverage because we all know the statistics that less than 4% of all um, uh, media coverage covers women's sports and less than 1% of all global sports sponsorship dollars goes to women's sports. So this is something that I'm working really hard at at the WNBA to, to you know, build you know, more household names and rivalries um, that that give you really compelling content for people to want to watch. And we know golf um, in the in the women's game is very compelling content. And so we've got to get out there and market um, in, a, in a better way, in a more inclusive way. And there's no time like the present to do that. 
And we'll touch on the Women Worth Watching campaign. Um, you, you took part in a roundtable with Barstool Sports CEO Erica Nardini and Molly Solomon, who's the executive producer of the NBC Olympics and Golf Channel, um, which is tremendous. And we'll get to that. But before I do, the Orange Hoodie campaign at, at the WNBA, it was really powerful. You know, you really elevated the WNBA. You saw it everywhere. What did that mean to the WNBA? And then as a segue, the story about Kobe Bryant reaching out to you and the iconic photo that unfortunately became iconic because of the passing of Kobe and Gianna, where he is wearing that orange hoodie. What was it like to have his support as well? Yeah, I'll start with the latter part. So um, Kobe, um, and I didn't know Kobe at all. I was head down at Deloitte, you know, um, you know, after he retired. And obviously I followed the NBA because I've got, you know, a lot of DNA around basketball with my father having been drafted into the NBA in 1957, the Detroit Pistons, by the way. So I followed Kobe's career and he was from Philadelphia. I was from the Philadelphia area. Um, but didn't know him. And then about three months, maybe two months into my tenure at the WNBA, Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, called me and said, um, just want to let you know, I was just in China and we were doing a variety of things. And um, and I, Kobe Bryant was there and Kobe didn't want to talk about the NBA. He wanted to talk about the WNBA uh, and he wants to meet the new commissioner. So um, I, I, I literally think Adam didn't even land from China. And I already had an email from Kobe and his team and a couple of weeks later, Kobe came to our New York offices in Midtown. Uh, he had he was actually on CNBC that morning, and he said, "Perfect timing." And uh, came in. We were scheduled for 45 minutes. I think we talked for two and a half hours. Very natural, like as if we had known each other our whole lives. And he was just such a committed um, advocate for the women's game. And obviously, Gigi, you know, being such a great player in the future you know, uh, certainly a future uh, WNBA or because um, she she was that good. And, you know, just such a tragedy that happened a little over a year ago. But yeah, the last picture of he and Gigi was he, I gave him that day the orange hoodie oh, wow. and he wore it to a Lakers game. And there's a great picture of LeBron coming over to shake his hand um, next to Gigi and Kobe's got the orange hoodie on that day. And it was late December. And unfortunately about a month later, the tragedy happened, but you know, so that, um, and of course we, we didn't do anything with the orange hoodie after that. We wanted to be very respectful and not play off of that. But when we got to our, uh, season in the middle of the pandemic, um, down in our bubble in Florida, um, you know, ESPN helped us with an idea to seed some of the orange hoodies with the NBA players over in Orlando who were, you know, about two hours away, as well as some, I'll call them advocates and influencers. And it ended up driving, you know, the WNBA hoodie, um, you know, and brand is so important to lift women's sports. So it ended up being kind of this symbol of the league, symbol of an advocate like Kobe Bryant, who actually wore it. Uh, and then a lot of the NBA players started wearing it, even when we didn't ask them to wear it. So we asked them, you know, if they could wear it on tip-off weekend, and they did. And then they started wearing it thereafter, and it became this symbol. And Naomi Osaka wore it, and and you know a few others. So, um, you know, it became the num, you know, top ten selling in fanatics, and like the number one in the WNBA store by far. And you know, really, you know, it's not really about how much you got in sales or revenue. It's about the brand and lifting the brand. And that's why the orange hoodie uh, was so meaningful and has really become a symbol of, you know, women and women's sports and, you know, kind of the rising tide lifts all boats. And so I really hope that this helps drive, you know, women's sports to a higher level and take advantage of the momentum, whether it's in golf, tennis, um, hockey, soccer, or, you know, obviously the WNBA. 
uh, Kathy, and incredibly powerful your interactions with Kobe and really what the Orange Hoodie campaign was was able to do with the advocacy from you know, sports stars all over the uh, the landscape, especially you know, male stars, uh, you know, pitching in and wearing that in support. Now, we're, yeah, we're one, one of the other Kobe stories I'll just tell real quick. So I meet him. That was October, I think. Then we sign our very historic and progressive collective bargaining agreement because the WNBA players are represented by a union. And who's the first person after we announce it to reach out with a tax to me with a big thumbs up? Kobe Bryant. And that was like January 15th of, of uh, 2020. So he, he was a true advocate and truly was mentoring a lot of our players, as you've seen, our players have, you know, really, um, you know, honored him thereafter and, and really miss him. Yeah, it really speaks to the man that, that Kobe was and really, you know, continued to to become after his playing career is over in support of uh, of women's sports in all issues, really. Uh, now, Catherine, we're coming up on one year since the WNBA and really most of the country shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. But looking back at these past 12 months, what makes you proudest of what the WNBA was able to accomplish with your voice and your platform? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, if you think about about a year ago, you know, April-ish, you know, we were planning to have a live draft in New York City with all the bells and whistles we usually have for our draft. It was an amazing draft class led by Sabrina Ionescu, who we we're pretty sure was going to be the number one pick and is really a crossover athlete in all sports and the men's game as well. Um, and think back, we had no idea what the virus really was and how long it would last. And we did the draft from my living room, by the way. Um, we put together scenarios to try to get a full season. And then the George Floyd incident happened. And we have a WNBA is a league of 80 percent women of color. And a key principle became now this is bigger than basketball. Emotions were so raw. So I think to answer your question, I was most proud that uh, at a time when emotions were so raw and the mental drain on our players was so high. Um, we launched the WNBA justice movement. We formed a social justice council. And then 92 days later, when we emerged from our bubble last summer, we got a great balance of competition and community, kept everybody safe. Um, amazingly, I still, still sometimes, you know, don't know how we did it um, at, our, at the WNBA campus at IMG Academy. Um, but not only were, and by the way, the only thing we actually could do while we were in the bubble is play some golf because IMG has a driving range and a golf course on their campus and we weren't allowed to leave the campus. Um, so it was, uh, it was nice to have that little outlet and people like Derek Fisher, the, the, the head coach of the Sparks and former teammate of Kobe Bryant, um, you know, would be out there at the driving range, Bill Lambeer, you know, so, and a lot of the, uh, you know, our women coaches and some of our players, play golf as well. So that was kind of a fun part, but I'm most proud of the platform. These players stood for their values um, when emotions were so raw and the mental drain and strain on these players was, was so enormous. It was certainly powerful, Kathy, just, just seeing how your league handled not only the pandemic, but standing up for those values uh, and strongly at that. It, it was certainly iconic uh, and it'll certainly continue. Kathy, as, as we stay on this same thread and we look at that hashtag women worth watching, which you know at our U.S. Women's Open in December, although it was postponed, it put us in a very unique uh, calendar year, really, where we didn't have a men's golf event up against us with the Women's Open. It gave us a, a premier platform to the golf audience, but also to the sports audience and the hashtag women worth watching became a rallying cry because of that data point you mentioned where 4% of sports coverage has to do uh, with women's sports, but upwards of 85% of sports fans are interested in women's sports. So this question was asked to you in the roundtable, and I'll ask it again here. Why are women worth watching? 
Yeah, they're worth watching because this is um, the time for women, women leaders to step up sports, builds leadership qualities. These women that are playing professional sports today are the future leaders, hopefully, in not only corporate America, but sports, media and entertainment. And so one of my hopes is that, you know, we help the women that are playing professionally today, whether it's in golf, basketball, tennis, et cetera, with their kind of post-retirement plan on becoming leaders, because we know they're worth watching because they're the best at their craft in the world, for sure. Um, but also because they're role model, models for young men and women, young girls and boys, but also um, they give hope to those girls and boys, you know, to be leaders uh, in, um, you know, in whatever they end up aspiring to do. And so we need those role models. And that's why women are worth watching. And we have to do a better job of marketing and valuing the women's games. And uh, I think, you know, there's no time like the present, you know, to capitalize on that momentum. And I was thrilled to see, um, you know, the popularity of, of uh, women's golf and the U.S. Women's Open uh, heighten. And, you know, we're always going to be in a competitive sports uh, landscape. I mean, we were in a very competitive, we were kind of the opposite of what happened with the U.S. Women's Open. The WNBA then was playing at the same time as the NBA and the NHL and MLB, and usually we're only playing against MLB. Uh, so it was uh, very challenging, but we saw a 68% increase in our average audience for regular season games on national television. Um, and we actually saw a 34% increase in viewership for our finals game three, which, by the way, ended up being a blowout, but Seattle um, ended up winning. And But it's incredible that the appetite is there, as you said, the interest in women's sports is there, and certainly women are worth watching. And I think we proved it. I think the U.S. Women's Open proved it. And we've got to, again, capitalize off that momentum um, and really drive the marketing of our um, events and our league and um, social media presence, and then just kind of build the storytelling for role models for these young girls and boys, especially young, diverse girls and boys, as they, you know, see the future and see their aspirations to lead in the future. And you, and you point to the data, which is very powerful. You talk about the uptick in viewership overall and then in the g- game three of the finals. But you talked about brand earlier as well. It's certainly a blend, right? So you can have the increased hours of coverage, but you also want to drive home the storylines and, and allow sports fans of all backgrounds to get to know these players. Is that right? Yes. And there's so many platforms on which you can do that now. Some that I certainly wasn't familiar with when I came into the league, um, being in the business world, but you have to look at the emerging platforms, the second screen experience that again, we skew a little younger fan and a more diverse fan, uh, in the WNBA. And you've got to, you know, evaluate it's just like a consumer product or a consumer business. You've got to evaluate who your customer is in our case, who your fan is. You've got to target market them. You've got to, find innovative ways given that everybody's on a second screen while maybe watching and and you know we innovated and piloted something called tap to cheer because we went to no fans uh, uh, that last year during the pandemic but you know we were able to get 140 million taps on our innovative second screen experience called tap to cheer that means 140 million times someone went and tapped on their app while probably watching a WNBA game because we kind of could tell when we would have a promo for it on an ESPN broadcast or a CBS Sports Network um, broadcast, you'd see the taps go up. So you knew they were watching and they were using a second screen. So it's all of those things, I think, that that we need to study, we need to evaluate, we need to try to find ways for 
to tell those stories, um, unique stories, and allow those sports fans to come in and watch that compelling. We know the content's compelling. It's how do you get the eyes on it? Yeah, Kathy, great point. I think a, a lot of innovation that's just happened last year, both you know what you, what you did with the WNBA and, and the entire organization, and has happened across the sports landscape. Given that, you know, for for a lot of us, we were looking for things to do, and and, and people found different ways to consume content and, and get those stories. So, uh, kudos to you, and and I think we're all learning from that certainly. And now on this podcast, we have a, a lot of different guests on, and, and we talk a lot about golf competition, right? The U.S. Open, the Women's Open, and the other 14 championships that the USGA puts on. So golf is a competitive vehicle, but how important is golf in the business world as a tool to get to know someone better, to network, or to even execute a deal? Uh, really important, and this is why I joined the game back in my late uh, 20s into my 30s, is because I saw that um, you know, and obviously I grew up in a predominantly male dominated industry. Um, and, you know, I saw how important it was to build relationships and yeah, you can have so many lunches and dinners, but you know, those usually are a little stuffier I'll say. And, but when you're on the golf course with a business executive and it's a great place to first build that relationship and you're not going into that round trying to close a deal necessarily, but you're trying to build a relationship that will come in handy down the road. And I can't tell you how it led to a huge amount of my success because when I started playing and I started building business relationships, I was not the CEO. And, you know, probably 15 years later, I had built all these relationships, built my personal brand through the game of golf, quite frankly, and uh, in the business world. And, you know, people would say, oh, well, Kathy golf, that's, you know, people who wanted to build relationships with me would say, she golf, why don't we invite her out? And so, I mean, it really, I was, I always felt included. It was a great inclusion story for me that as a woman and a CEO and a mom that I was getting invited by, you know, top executives at corporations and, um, you know, I'll just name Randall Stevenson as one at AT&T, you know, kind of was in his office one day and saw, you know, he had, you know, they had just started sponsoring Jordan Spieth at the time and saw kind of the golf bag in the corner where, where you would have like a, a tree or something, you know, a, a decorative thing. And I said, oh, you know, that's pretty cool. Randall, he told me the story about sponsoring Jordan. And then I, he kind of looked at me and said, do you play golf? And I said, yeah, but I was kind of like shy and like, not, not that well, Randall, if you're like one of these, you know, scratch handicaps. And he said, oh, how would you like to play in the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am? And, and so I was like, that would be great. Not realizing I just signed up for 54 holes inside the ropes. <laughs> and, uh, and that year, one of my putts on the 18th at Pebble got on golf channel and I, and I actually uh -oh. made it miraculously, but <laughs> Um, but you know, that's, that's, you know, how you build relationships and then golf is such an amazing place to do it. And, and you can build sponsors and mentors too, through that in the business world, you know, because people get to know you. And again, back to my advice about never taking yourself too seriously, like know when to pick up and move on. Um, you know, especially when you're a beginner, because golf is a frustrating game to play. And as someone who was a, a previous athlete, um, at a high level, you know, golf is tough in the beginning. And I think that's another trait that golf teaches you that crosses over into business that when you start a new job, it usually takes a while to hit your stride in that new job or to find your leadership style. And same with golf. When you first start playing, it's hard, it's harder to get the ball in the air and you take a few lessons and then, you know, you're off and running and you, you just got to stick with it. And that's um, an important crossover lesson in, in golf and business as well. 
it's a great story you had about Pebble Beach. And, you know, you get invited to some pro-ams and it's usually like a Wednesday event, 18 holes, but you, you sign up for a little more than that, 54 holes on TV. Uh, so that that's pretty cool. You're able to make a par on that iconic 18th hole at Pebble, Pebble Beach, which, by the way, will hold a 2023 uh, U.S. Women's Open. So we're certainly very, very excited about that. Very, very exciting. Yes. Now, One of my Beach, favorite courses. It, it is absolutely beautiful, especially if you get it on a on a sunny day, for sure. And now, Kathy, based on your wealth of experience with Deloitte, with the WNBA, what perspective do you hope to bring to the USGA with your role on the executive committee? Yeah, I really hope to bring, you know, again, a, a, an outside perspective from the uh, perspective that, you know, I, I've i played the game, I've watched the game, I've gone to many U.S. Opens um, and other tournaments, but, you know, seeing the innovation that was feeding the business world and digital and technology and and again, now in my role, you know, seeing how um, you have to engage the digital native generation in a different way to come into the game. So I'm hoping to bring now that I'm running a consumer brand in sports, that that view and vision and, you know, things that work and don't work. And certainly hoping to pay it forward around the women's game, because that's really important to me to lift all of women's sports in my role. And one of the reasons I took this role coming out of corporate life uh, was to have a literally I had three criteria. I wanted to do something different, something with a broad women's leadership platform and something I had a passion for. And so um, that's why the USGA executive committee was of such interest to me because I have a huge passion for the game. And I think, you know, hopefully we can make an impact together on the women's game as well. Um, you know, because it's really important to me to have a diverse and inclusive future as we think about the future of golf and to offer that as role models and build confidence in young girls, uh, through the various, um, initiatives that the USGA has out there and to drive that to a higher level. But Again, the one thing I enjoy, and I enjoy this on some of my other um, outside activities, is kind of bringing the perspective of um, digital data, all the things that are evolving. I was always very curious and interested in nascent technologies at Deloitte and how we would invest in those and they would drive the business of the future. So same thing here, because I think sports is facing uh, a lot of technological disruption, as you've already seen in the game of golf and other games and analytics and other things. So I, I'd love to, to to weigh in on my perspectives on that as well. Well, Kathy, we are so excited to have you officially part of the USGA, even though it feels like you've been part of this family for a while from your Deloitte days, uh, joining Chuck Brimer, chairman of DDB Worldwide, and Anthony Petiti, president of sports and entertainment for Activision Blizzard, the three newest members of the USGA executive committee. So, Kathy, I know you're busy, so we really appreciate you taking the time and joining us today. And again, so excited to have you officially part of the executive committee, and we hope to see you hopefully in person soon. Yes. Thanks, Dave and Mike, and stay safe and healthy. You as well, Kathy. And thank you, everyone out there, for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about the USGA and its executive committee, you can check out usga.org slash about us. And here's a recommendation. If you'd like to re-watch the Women Worth Watching Roundtable featuring Kathy, Molly Solomon, and Erica Nardini, you can find it on the USGA's YouTube channel. Simply search Women Worth Watching Roundtable. It is worth watching. For our guest, Kathy Engelbert, and my co-host, Mike Trosel, I'm Dave Giancola, and we will talk to you next time.